Hello, welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the coming days, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever IdeaFest at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. In her talk with Cap Times political reporter Jesse Apoyan, the senator known for her humor, optimism, and bipartisanship reflects on the 2016 election, the future of the Democratic Party, and what it's like serving with a former cast member of Saturday Night Live. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Well, thanks to all of you for, for being here at this inaugural event. And, and thank you, Senator. Welcome to Wisconsin. Uh, we'll give the Senator a chance to speak first, and then we'll get into the questions. Uh, well, thank you so much. And it is just great to be here with Jesse and uh, the Cap Times on the inaugural event. I have this feeling I'm going to come back in three years, five years, and it's, you know, we're going to have this amazing crowd, and we have one today. And I happen to be competing with another session on the future of cheese in Wisconsin. I am, I am well aware of that situation, and I'll be talking to Jesse about that later. Um, and actually, this is quite a room of people, and I will. I enjoyed the reference uh, to my colleague uh, Al Franken. Um, it is not easy having, you know, Al Franken as your other senator when I uh, he first got elected after his long recount. Um, uh, Senator Schumer in Durban actually called me into a room. It's a true story. I'd been in the Senate for two years, and they said, this is going to be a lot harder than you think. And I go, well, what do you mean? Now uh, we get along. It's finally done. And they said, uh, no, no. You see, uh, when you have the other senator and they're very famous, it's not that easy. And Chuck says, yeah, you know, I've had Hillary Clinton. And Durban said, yeah, I, you know, I have Barack Obama. He's now the, he's now the president. And you go into airports and you're walking in and you know, you're thinking you're so cool, which later would happen to me. People would say, we're not in Minnesota. And they would see, they go, hey, do you work with him? I go, yes, I do. And they said, oh, could you take my picture with him? I'm like, OK. Yeah, I always kind of want to put it on the selfie mode. Oh, here's a picture of a senator. There you go. I, don't, I didn't do that. But it kind of uh, culminated in actually when we were getting on a Delta flight out of DC back to Minneapolis, Southern flight crew, but all Minnesotans. And we get on the flight, and the flight attendant takes the microphone and says, everyone, we have celebrities on the plane, Mr. and Mrs. Al Franken. <laughs> and we're like, no. And Al says that, and the plane loads. It's not, they're all laughing. And Al says, no, 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 no. She is actually uh, the other senator from Minnesota. Flight attendant, how cool is this? Husband and wife senators. <laughs> that's my life. That's kind of my life. OK, so that's how I get through this time that we're in. That's a nice segue, huh? Um, so uh, I do bring you greetings from our state, uh, where in the words of Garrison Keillor, our poet laureate, all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the ideas are above average. So that is what uh, we're here to talk about today. Uh, um, I note that my uh, colleague and friend Tammy Baldwin actually is a graduate, right, of UW-Madison Law School, which is uh, cool. And uh, it is just great to be here with all of you. Uh, my mom is actually uh, from, oh, she died a few years ago, but from Wisconsin and uh, grew up in Milwaukee. All, how you like this for a great Wisconsin story? All Swiss. And my, her parents actually were uh, directly 
uh, came to our country from Switzerland, and my great grandma was a cheesemaker. That's a true story, and that's what they did. Um, so I have fond memories of my life growing up and coming to Wisconsin every single summer, every single Christmas, taking the train for some reason, and going to see Samson the gorilla at the Milwaukee uh, Museum. That really scared me, and I had dreams about it. So. Okay, so I think I'm going to rewind back to where we are today, um, and that is to election night uh, when Al and I were roaming around our Twin Cities giving speeches, and I actually uh, got home around midnight, and I got a text from my daughter, who's now 22. She was 21. She was a senior in college, uh, and I had this horrible mom guilt because I forgot that she was actually at Hillary's party in New York, and I had forgotten it all night, and this text said, Mom, what should we do now? And I wrote this long mom guilt thing back without how, you know, when you do that, you don't even think. And I said, the subways are still running. Uh, this is not going well. She's not going to speak. I'm sure they want you to stay, but don't stay. You need to go stay at our friends with your roommate, and you have class tomorrow. That's what I wrote. <laughs> and she wrote back, Mom, I mean our country. Okay. <laughs> So that is literally the question I've been asking every single day. What do we do now? What do we do when this happens? What do we do when that happens? And I think you as citizens have been answering that same thing, whether you're Democrat, Republican, somewhere in the middle. Um, as we know, both of our states have strong traditions of independent voters. And if you don't believe me about Minnesota, I have three words for you, Governor Jesse Ventura, right? <laughs> So this is how I've come uh, to look uh, at this time, and I think there are these forks in the road that you reach um, every single day, really. Um, one was Charlottesville, uh, when we had uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists basically taking over a city, and that for me was this moment I won't forget when the president said, well, there are actually two sides, and I said, there are not two sides, there is only one side. Um, and that's the American side. And I think you heard that. You heard kind of a, you heard that also from uh, people on the Republican side as well. So I think that was a, a pretty big moment um, in our country. And I see that as why I decided I had a choice to make at the end of last year about running for governor, running for Senate in Minnesota. And I decided to run for Senate because I felt like I couldn't leave my duty station. One, I'm someone that works across the aisle, and it's a place of compromise, and that's really important right now um, as we look at what just happened last week on the debt ceiling, thank God, and what we may be able to fix now for those DACA kids. It's a really important moment. Uh, Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray uh, working, bringing us together on some fixes to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Senate is where that's happening, right? Um, but it is also an emergency break. Uh, it is an emergency break to stand up for an independent judiciary. Uh, it is an emergency break to stand up uh, for the freedom of the press. Uh, when you have, and I'm the daughter of a, a reporter um, and uh, someone my dad wrote, I don't know, 40 years uh, for the AP and then the um, Minneapolis Star Tribune. Um, and we have in office right now a president that <laughs> tweets, which he's been doing less of, but, you know, tweets whatever he wants, but then doesn't show the respect for the amendment that allows him to do that, right? Um, so you have that issue. You have standing up for democracy, and that's everything from uh, taking on these voter suppression efforts all across the country and the so-called Election Integrity Commission uh, to, um, to taking on the Russian 
nuclear Russian attempt to interfere in our election. Um, and that was actually one of my most heartening moments this year is where everyone stood up together and said, no, we're going to put this special prosecutor in place. And when attempts were made to fire people in the Justice Department, everyone stood up pretty much in Congress and said no, including Democrats had to say, no, we're not going to fire Jeff Sessions. <laughs> That's where we were. Um, because over this, we're not going to do that because this a special prosecutor should be able to do his job and finish uh, his investigation. So that's that part of our job. But there's a third part of my job right now, and that is now and looking into the future at an economic agenda for this country. And that's what uh, I, I would we talk about new ideas uh, when I want to focus on some today. And that's everything from uh, this idea of workforce training, which is incredibly important as we gather at this uh, great university. Uh, figuring out how we can do two things at once, right? We can, really three things at once. Uh, we can have uh, great universities where students get advanced degrees and fill these advanced jobs that we have and we know we have going into the future in our economy. But we also respect and dignify a different track, uh, which people like my sister who uh, didn't even finish her high school degree because she was having issues, went down to Iowa, worked at a plant, eventually got her GED, years later went to a community college and got a two-year degree, and years after that, like we're now looking at 10 years, uh, got uh, two more years of college and ended up graduating with an accounting degree and getting the highest score in the accounting exam in Iowa that year. But I don't say that in Iowa because it's not nothing. Um, so, but the point of that story is that people have different pathways. Um, and I just heard Governor McAuliffe talk about Virginia. I did this rural summit and he talked about how he measured things by not just how many kids are graduating from high school and college in Virginia, but he talked about their getting credentials, which I thought was just the kind of thing we have to start doing. We have so many jobs for plumbers and welders that are coming open right now. Um, and in the healthcare field. And some of these degrees are one and two year degrees. So we have to see this as a track that goes simultaneously uh, with this other track. And the third thing is immigration reform. Um, we are a country uh, founded by immigrants. 25% of our US Nobel laureates were born in other countries. People don't always think about that. 70 of our Fortune 500 companies are headed up by immigrants. At one point, 200 of them were headed up by immigrants or kids of immigrants. Uh, and yet we are basically cutting off that talent flow. And when you look at the workforce in places like Minnesota and the rural areas, if we cut that off, we're going to lose business and we're going to lose jobs. And so um, looking at this issue, not only as a humanitarian issue that it is, but also as an economic issue when you have, for instance, these DACA kids, 800,000 of them, 97% of them are right now in school or in the workforce. That was what, that's what we would do to our workforce. 6,000 of these kids are in uh, Minnesota. Average age they come over, six and a half years old. Um, so looking at that that way, when we look at workforce and how we fill the jobs for the future, seeing it with those, I know it's nuanced and politics isn't very good at nuance right now, but looking at it in those different ways of how we fill jobs. Um, next, infrastructure. Um, there, we can maybe talk about that later, but there's some exciting ways we could fund that and look at that. I live just eight blocks from that bridge that fell down in the middle of a beautiful summer day in Minnesota. That was a bridge we, uh, my family drives over every single day, and that there it fell. And I said that day, a bridge doesn't fall down in the middle of America, but it did. 
Uh, and what we did in Minnesota, if you followed any of it, because we're state legislature, since you enmeshed in this, um, uh, we ended up um, uh, basically looking at all our bridges and putting a ton of money into it. Uh, legislature taking some brave moves um, over actually then Governor Pawlenty's veto um, and funded the bridges and funded the roads. And three years ago, CNBC voted our state the best state to do business in. And it wasn't because we had the lowest taxes. And one of my favorite things was that we got higher than Texas, and I got to tell Ted Cruz that in the hallway. <laughs> um, and so that was from um, that was because we invested in education and we invested in infrastructure. So I think that is a national conversation that we should be having. Um, third part of this is to talk about how we invest here in our own country and the tax code, how we. Uh, make some changes, and Hillary Clinton was talking about this in her campaign, and I don't think it got enough attention, but to get um, incentives for companies to hold money for the long term, right? So they don't, it's, not everything is just, well, how do you look each quarter, but incentives to keep money where it is and invested in companies in America. Um, and more things with retirement and how we acknowledge this gig economy that we're in. Uh, where especially young people are working two jobs or they're working and they're changing jobs more and how do they bring their benefits and how do we make it easier uh, to save and those are areas that I think you could have some new ideas and you could have some bipartisan support as well. Uh, fourth thing and last thing I'd say is just how we um, bring costs down for average Americans and we're here talking about student loans making that easier to refinance um, pharma, oh my God, I mean those, the top 10 selling drugs in America, this is not just EpiPen, um, um, four of them have gone up over 100%, top 10 selling drugs, things like insulin, right, uh, in just the last few years. And unfortunately in the Affordable Care Act, nothing was really done uh, to bring those costs down, nothing. And I said that at the time, and it has still grown to be a problem, and now nearly 20% of our uh, healthcare costs when you, you include pharma at hospitals is pharmaceuticals. Um, and that is why I'm uh, leading the bill uh, with John McCain uh, to bring in less expensive drugs from Canada. Uh, in Minnesota, we can see Canada from our porch. Um, and we don't understand uh, why their drugs are half as expensive. Or Medicare Part D negotiation, just to make it sort of simpler, I always think that sounds like a mouthful. Right now, the law bans 41 million seniors, bans them from joining together to negotiate lower prices under Medicare. The last time I checked, seniors are pretty good at finding bargains, and this is a bad idea to do that. So lifting that ban, um, I lead that effort as well. Here's a great one. Right now, big pharmaceuticals pay off generics. Those are their main competitors to keep products off the market. <laughs> And the generics go, okay. And it's called pay for delay, because they delay putting the, the products in the market. Uh, Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, and I lead a bill uh, that would put an end to that, $3 billion in savings, uh, just over 10 years for the budget, probably the same amount for consumers. Those are just like three big ideas for your ideas festival. So um, I think those are the kinds of things we have to look at when we look at bringing costs down. I also introduced an antitrust bill, which if we really get in the weeds, I can explain uh, when I'm sitting up there to change um, some of the, um, the playing field uh, when it comes to our antitrust enforcement. 
Um, so I'll just end with this because um, we want to talk about ideas. Um, and that is that I know people get kind of depressed right now, really on both sides of the aisle. I, I stood there at the state fair at my booth um, uh, the last uh, few weeks uh, where I'm strategically located. I never leave my neighbors. That's why I call right the senator next door. I just take my neighbors as who they are. But I have to say it's like the worst place for a politician in the United States of America. I am on the corner with the haunted house on one corner where we will often have like ghosts and skeletons doing aerobics to loud music. I then have the pork chop on a stick, pork chop on a stick, uh, right kitty corner to me, and then right behind me, Bob's Snake Zoo. And every single photo I have has a sign that says Bob's Snake Zoo, right? And you have like um, people coming out screaming after they paid their $2 and they see it, but then they come right into my arms and I'm free. So, you know, it's a good, it's a good situation. So when I'm there, I hear a lot of stuff from people because it's just like uh, what you with festivals in Wisconsin, just people come up to you that would never call you, that would never email you, but they just come up. Um, and that's when you hear these heartbreaking stories of people uh, whose uh, drugs uh, have put them over the top or soldiers whose benefits have gotten screwed up and so you fix them. And it gives you some faith um, that representative democracy is alive and well. And what also gave me faith is what I saw uh, directly after that inauguration and that dark, dark speech uh, was that millions of people across the country, including 100,000 right here in Madison, just decided to get up uh, and peacefully march that day. Over half of them had never even been involved in politics before except to vote. And the next day after that, 6,000 women signed up and said they wanted to run on the Emily's List website. And day nine of that was the refugee order and hundreds of thousands of people spontaneously showed up at airports. I mean, who does that on a Saturday? Well, I think I'll go to the airport tonight. That's what they did uh, to protest what had happened. And they actually did make a difference, at least during that transition period for some of the people that were still able uh, to come over. And that fight continues. Day 100, my personal favorite march and app uh, for this great university, the March for Science. Uh, my favorite sign, what do we want? Science. When do we want it? After peer review. <laughs> um, but that brought in young people uh, uh, like we had uh, never seen before, scientists, people that had not maybe been involved in this before. Uh, you go up to day 180-something uh, was the day that would not have happened except for the Democratic senators who said, yeah, the president is right. This health care bill is mean. And we stood up together from Joe Manchin to Bernie Sanders and said no. And two brave women, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, said the same thing and said we'd rather work across the aisle and make fixes than do this. And then my friend John McCain came in with that dramatic no vote, okay? That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't just for those people in the Senate. It was because there were people out there that hadn't lost faith that their voice mattered. Uh, so that's what I want to leave you with, that this is not just a moment to overcome, uh, that this is a moment to shine. So let's shine. Ready to talk. Thank you. going to leave me without any questions to ask. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. no. I have, no. We've got plenty. Uh, I'm a senator. We can filibuster. <laughs> I have so much more to say. Oh, I, no. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> 
Well, this, this uh, festival is, is a lot about looking forward and, and thinking about ideas for the future, but we, we can't do that without uh, looking back a little bit and, and looking at how we got here. So I guess what, you know, one, one question I really have for you as the, the senator next door to, to Wisconsin is, uh, you know, these, these states, of course, we have our rivalries and our competitions. And You mean that we, I mean, I always feel like the Gophers is kind of a funny name for a team, but then I see the Badgers. And we are both states that have teams that are named after rodents. We have silly so names. We have, we have but like our football record's a, yeah. a little, okay. little bit better yeah. here. Um, no, but, but uh, you know, I, I want to know why you, why you think, you know, these, these two states with a lot of shared sensibilities uh, have gone down such different political roads, um, you know, within the state, but also looking at uh, the, the 2016 election. How do we have such different environments just across the, the border from each other? Okay, so first of all, we actually are very similar in our presidential votes. I mean, this if you want to look at that, Obama won in that last election of his by about the same amount in both states. So I don't think they're completely dissimilar on that federal stage. Um, you have a split delegation in the Senate with Tammy and Ron. Um, and we had a split delegation just a few years ago uh, with Norm Coleman and myself. So. Uh, we also, just to be clear, when I first came in as senator, uh, Governor Pawlenty was our governor. Three of four of our constitutional officers were Republican. And Michelle Bachman uh, was my uh, one of my uh, congresspeople. So we had, um, it hasn't been that completely different. Uh, and I think people say that, and there are differences. Yes, the last decade, it has been quite different on the state basis. Uh, but our legislature is all Republican right now in leadership. So let's not, you know, act like the world is completely different. I think what has been different is Minnesota has taken a different policy course. Even with the Republicans in power at the legislature just this year, uh, with our problems with the Affordable Care Act, there was enough public sentiment, and I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said public sentiment is everything, right? And when you look at what happened when that... Uh, that bill came out, uh, the mean bill, um, it almost immediately only had 18, 19% support. Part of it was that AARP came out and said it was a problem. Um, and the next thing you knew, Obamacare was more popular than the President of the United States. So I, I, I can't explain this. But that was a national trend that was going on, but was maybe a little different than what you might have seen in Wisconsin. Our Republican legislature then decides to work with uh, Mark Dayton and make some immediate changes, some practical changes, including putting a bunch of money in for cost sharing and then doing something with reinsurance. And we're waiting for that to be approved by the governor, similar to what the Republican governor did in Alaska. So we, I think we may have a little bit more of, of a camaraderie situation going on. I would point to number one, front and center, and this is so relevant to the case that's going before the Supreme Court, we don't have gerrymandering in Minnesota. What does this mean? Even though Trump almost won our state and we weren't that different on this, right? Uh, Hillary actually got a lower percentage in Minnesota than she did in Wisconsin. She got a lower percentage in Minnesota than she did in Michigan, Florida, and in um, Pennsylvania. So you wonder how she won in Minnesota? <laughs> what do you think the Minnesotans did, the home of Jesse Ventura? They voted independent. A bunch of them voted for and guess what his name was? Johnson. They like that in Minnesota, right? Scandinavian. Then at the same time, Tim Walls in southern Minnesota, who's now running for governor, Rick Nolan in northern Minnesota, these are all Democrats, 
and Colin Peterson, who has the most conservative district of any Democrat in Congress and is ranking on ag, they all won. Some of them with an okay margin, but one of them just barely. They all won at the same time. Well, that's because we don't have gerrymandering in their districts and their voters have come to know them, right? They've come to trust them and that had overrode what was a national wave. And I think that that lack of gerrymandering has helped us not only so that we can have moderate Democrats basically that are getting elected, but here's the big thing. People in Minnesota, it's, it's easy to vote. It's been pretty easy to vote in Wisconsin too, right? A little harder now, but in Minnesota, people have that trust that their vote matters. How can you not have that trust uh, when you don't have gerrymandering and when Al Franken wins by less amount of people in this room, okay? Um, they know that their vote can matter and they've seen that time and time again, so it gives them trust. So when I go out now and talk to rural farmers and do this, I visit all 87 counties every single year, um, and I get out there and I, I talk to voters that voted for Trump. You know, some of them are still there with them. Some of them are really questioning it, but it doesn't matter. The one thing they have in common is they participated. They were part of it. They know they were part of this national decision, whether it was good or bad, whether they're gonna decide that was a wrong decision or a right decision. When you have that kind of trust, you have a working democracy. And I think that some of the things that have been going on in Wisconsin with the you know, attack on unions, the attack on some of the institutions, I think that breaks down our trust. So I think it's a lot more complicated than people think because when you look at the fact that we've got um, similar votes um, in the presidential pretty much, um, uh, it's not quite like it seems. Um, and I think also those issues I raised before of the investment in infrastructure, the investment in education, uh, have clearly made some differences in our economy and then made for a more happy citizenry by all of the accounts um, in Minnesota. Uh, one survey, the only states happier that the only state happier than our people were Hawaii. <laughs> it's hard to compete with that. And North Dakota. But I don't think Wisconsin was way down on the list. So there you go. So you, you mentioned camaraderie, and you have a reputation in the Senate for being very pragmatic in your votes, for having a lot of bipartisan legislation. You mentioned some of it you know, already today, your, uh, your bills with, with Senator McCain. And, and I guess my, I'm, I'm curious now, the environment does seem to have become a little bit more difficult. You mean like we're going out of vogue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, uh, you well. know, how, how does that change? How do you, how does your approach to bipartisanship change in, uh, in a, in a post-election era, era when bipartisanship is, is maybe not so fashionable? Well, I think it's become more important um, than ever, actually. Um, and that was one of the decisions I made when I decided not to leave my duty station, is that uh, you need people uh, that are willing to stand their ground, but also find common ground uh, where they can. And that looks for the good in people. We could not have defeated uh, that uh, health care bill if it wasn't for Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and John McCain, okay? Uh, we would not have that special prosecutor if it wasn't for, yes, the Democrats standing together, so important, but also a few Republicans that were willing to stand up and uh, Richard Burr working with Mark Warner or um, some of the other ones. So even if you look at it from a purely self-interest of the democracy fact, you want to be able to work with people and not completely, um, you know, stand in your opposite corners of the boxing ring and throw punches every single day. Um, I truly believe that uh, courage 
right now is not can you do that, but it's are you willing to stand next to someone you don't always agree with for the betterment of this country. And uh, that is uh, what you saw in a number of these kind of radioactive moments uh, in the last few months. Um, and and uh, that's just how I view it. And uh, I have voted for, against, of course, a lot of these Betsy DeVos and the climate change deniers and a lot of these, but I have voted for some of the Trump people, knowing there's got to be one that I voted for that's going to end up being a disaster. I don't know. But I voted for some of them because I truly believe that you needed someone who was the director of the FBI after Jim Comey was fired, uh, who knew what he was doing and had the support of, by the way, Sally Yates, okay? Um, and I was strong supporter of his. I voted for um, General Mattis. I felt that it was important to have some even-keeled people uh, running some of our um, military operations. Or I voted for Wilbur Ross because he understood steel and in, Minnesota, our iron ore mines are, are so much at the whim of foreign countries dumping steel on our shores. And he actually had the endorsement of the steel workers and had shown some ability to negotiate this agreements that were good uh, for American steel. Um, and that isn't to say I like everything they do, but I truly felt we were reaching after that dark inauguration speech of uh, this moment in time where if you don't stand up um, for our government and the continuation of our government, you're not doing the right thing. And that um, this was one of those everyday forks in the road that you have to take and decide uh, which way you're going to go. And that was what I decided because I think it's really important that you have people in place. Yeah, they would have gotten through with just Republican support. That's true because that's 51 votes, right? That, that would have, you look at the numbers, they were done, they would have gotten through. But I felt some of them needed Democratic support, about half my colleagues, or maybe two-thirds of my colleagues, three-fourths, depending on the nominee, agreed, um, as that you wanted to have that for the good of the employees and the agencies, but mostly for the good of the American people. I mean, when we looked at those nominations, there, there was a spectrum uh, within the Democratic Party of, of some senators really uh, opposed quite a few, and, and some more uh, like you were. It's a lot easier just to vote against them. I sure. Know, especially explaining it here in Madison. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is that. And I think, you know, Senator Baldwin's gotten uh, a few questions about it um, in, in Wisconsin. But uh, is the Democratic Party itself, I guess. Oh, because she voted for some of them. Well, she did, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is the Democratic Party itself facing a, a fork in the road? Is, is there a divide or a reckoning after the election that uh, you know, needs to be reconciled before 18 and 20? I, you know, I, it, I, every day I'm on this leadership team of, um, well, with uh, Chuck Schumer. And uh, by the way, I'll never forget the, the moment where uh, we had, he had gone to the White House that day, right? And we've never had an emergency meeting of our team. We've had like, oh, two hours later. And Tammy is on the team, right? So picture Tammy and me in there. And it's, um, it's uh, I'm not going to list everyone, but it's Durbin and Patty Murray. And then it is um, <laughs> Manchin and Warner and Bernie and Elizabeth. Okay, <laughs> it's, a, it's quite the group. So he calls this emergency thing. And I think, I think it's something with North Korea. I run out of my meeting. I you know, get to his office. And he's sitting in his chair and says, you will not believe what happened just now. Uh, because he couldn't, uh, we had been so concerned about blowing up the debt ceiling, honestly. And we felt like we were being responsible in what we proposed in the middle of two hurricanes. Um, but it was uh, this moment in time where we didn't 
think uh, that we could ever have the possibility of working with the president on anything. So I just bring that story up, one, because it was we had a moment of about a week, and now we're going for it with trying to get the 800,000 kids protected. But I bring the story up because we're all there on one team, right? And yeah, we have disagreements, but we have decided that basically, given what we're up against right now uh, in the country, both from external threats, whether it's King, Kim Jong-un or whether it is what's happening in the Mideast or whether it is um, um, what's happening uh, right now in our politics, uh, that whenever possible, when something is a big deal, uh, that we have stuck together. Um, and I think when you look at the last election, yes, there were differences, obvious, with our states really understanding and with a bunch of our educated voters and our people that really turn out the differences between Hillary and Bernie, there were some, um, but it was um, really also a, a difference in approach. And when you look at um, what happened in the last election, I always um, um, think about my husband. He's the third of six boys, uh, grew up in a trailer home, and they had this old station wagon, and he was always the good kid and twice he actually got left behind at the gas station. You know, they like forgot that he was not in the car. Um, and I just don't think we can leave the Midwest behind at the gas station this time, that that just can't happen. Um, and I'm not just talking about visits and you go to Sheboygan and stuff. I went to Sheboygan once and I have the best button I ever had for Barack Obama, brought Obama. Okay, I still have it. It's in my jewelry box. But okay, so it is not really um, always looking at me, you know. Do you, um, it's not just also always about visits, it's also about how you talk to people, you know, and where you try to find that common ground and how you talk about issues. Um, and I just think that we had some problems with that, uh, with our iron ore workers up there. They just didn't see that, that people were talking to them. And I can't give you the magic words. We've been using the term better deal because we really want to start talking about an economic agenda. Those are fine for right now. It may stick, it may not. Um, I like it because you're talking about better deal for the American people. But I, I, who knows what will be the president's theme or our candidate's theme as you go into the next election. Uh, but somehow uh, we lost that economic argument uh, because we were running down the rabbit hole uh, with Donald Trump uh, wherever he went. And I think what you see in this election, when you have people up in really red states like North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp, Claire in Missouri, um, they have long supported a lot of populist and progressive um, uh, items for the people. And that was a lot of what Bernie was talking about. He and I did that bill on the drugs from Canada that I also have with McCain. We did that together, uh, that amendment earlier this year. Um, and you will see a lot of those, the antitrust bills that I did. I think you'll see that kind of coming up more and more in campaigns, and I think that's really important, but you won't see candidates that are embracing every single uh, word and every single way of talking about things because they're of their unique brands, they have their unique way of talking about things, they have unique issues in the state, and I believe our party's big enough to understand that, that you know Joe Manchin's gonna be looking out for his uh, coal miners or uh, that you're going to have, uh, like a Colin Peterson, have some different views uh, on the farm bill than other people. And uh, we just have to be big enough to understand that. And I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see if um, it's not going to be like, which way are we going to go? You're just going to see more of these policy ideas um, being discussed in, in the campaigns. We have a, a question from the audience that I think uh, 
attaches nicely to, to that. Um, there's a University of Wisconsin professor, Kathy Kramer. She spent a lot of time traveling rural areas in Wisconsin. She wrote a book called The Politics of Resentment. And yeah, how Tammy that, told me about that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about it and a I lot here I think we had her come and speak once. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and Minnesota, I think, has some, some similar uh, population areas. How much does, does resentment play into uh, the, the way that people vote and the way that uh, politicians need to talk to them? Yeah, I think that they. I think that there were people who really resented that no one was doing stuff for them. Uh, they felt they saw those prescription drug costs go up. You know, nearly twenty percent of our health care, and they just pox on both your houses. Sometimes, sometimes they voted either way. But I think that they were mad. Um, I think when that, and I think that's legitimate. And I think for our party to ignore that is just a huge, huge mistake. I was with some farmers. Uh, it was a it was a closed door meeting, so I'm not going to go into who it was and where it was. But uh, in August, and uh, w- one of them was talking about his health care premiums, and especially in the r- rural areas, how expensive they were, and how he had finally just decided to go off of um, off of his health care. And then he his wife had a surgery, and then he's now paying a monthly rate to the hospital to pay it off, which is still less than what his premiums would have been. And he told me the whole story, and then he goes, but then there was another mistake. And as a politician, I'm really thinking, okay, I'll, I'll take this one. And I, we got these eight sort of burly guys in the room, and I go, yeah, well, we try our best. You know, I'm on the ag committee. We're working on the farm bill. We're gonna, he goes, no, no. He said it was my mistake. And he says, I went in that ballot box, that's how he phrased it, uh, in the fall, and I voted for Donald Trump. And now I wake up. And I can't sleep because I think about it because it was a mistake. And he started to cry. Now, that's why I think you've seen those numbers. Of course, the base is still there, that 25, 30%, but those numbers have gone down uh, because of people like him. And that is what's probably motivating this new charm offensive and the uh, work that is going on across the aisle. If that's where it had to go to get there, you know, fine by me. Um, But I, I do think that the rural part of this country can't be left behind. And I think that trying to um, talk about policies uh, that reach people uh, in a different way is going to be really, really important. And you've, you've said before, you know, you expect the path for the presidency in, in 2020 to run through the Midwest. Um, at the same time, we have seen the Midwest, I think, uh, go in a more conservative direction than it has in the past. Wisconsin voted for Republican president for the first time since 1984. Um, how do mm-hmm. Democrats reach the Midwest, and, and what do they have to offer? I mean, what is what mm-hmm. is the Democratic pitch for 2020? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first is um, is leaving no one behind, right? And uh, how we talk about things and the policies that we put out there. Uh, it is this idea of a better deal. This idea of uh, not everyone needs a four-year degree if you don't want one. We respect that. I just don't think that that, I, I know I'm talking about this in a college, but I don't think that message got out there very much at all. And I think it was hurting us when, in fact, we had the ideas for community college and uh, doing more with apprenticeships and things like that. I think that's really important for families and for parents. Um, and taking on this issue that this bigger is not always better um, which I've done with this antitrust bill that I put out uh, this week. Um, we're down to now um, from 63 class one railroads. It may not seem like it affects you, but it's how, how a lot of your goods get transported, right? And the costs. 
we're down to four railroads, uh, which is the exact same on the monopoly board, right? Uh, so I think taking um, uh, these kinds of things on, I think people are willing to listen and think about maybe this isn't as easy as just wearing a hat that says make America great again. Uh, maybe we need to step back and really have some discussion about these, but then we have to summarize our messages not in five bumper stickers that say to be continued, okay? I always go back to Bill Clinton's original, um, I loved his original putting people first, remember that back in 1992? I don't think we can copy that, but that is, that's the kind of thing we have to be talking about if we're gonna get people. And there was one thing I didn't mention when you asked about the resentment factor, I was rolling back that question in my mind. I think one of the things that, um, uh, we, we did ward off against, but not very effectively, and we have to think of new ways to do this, uh, was the resentment that was really uh, boiled up by the rhetoric of Donald Trump and the people, uh, some of his campaign people, and that was the rhetoric against immigrants, uh, against people of color. I literally, during that summer, uh, went to a mosque in Minneapolis and uh, the, you know, we have a huge Somali population, the biggest in the country. They're uh, pretty integrated in our, they're not just in the Twin Cities, they're working in St. Cloud, they're working in the suburbs, they're a bunch, a big <clears throat> population in Moorhead and in Fargo. And uh, this family told me the story. They'd been, the parents had been in Minnesota during 9-11 and they didn't experience any um, backlash or anything. But this last summer they took their two kids to a restaurant and this guy walked by and he says, uh, you four go home. You go home to where you come from. And the little girl looks up at her mom and she says, Mom, I don't want to go home. You said we could eat dinner out tonight. I don't, I don't want to eat dinner at home. And you think of the words of that innocent child. She only knows one home. She didn't even know what he was talking about. She only knows one home, and that's my state. She only knows one home, and that's the United States of America. But that's what happened because of that. And that's what happened in Charlottesville. So I think that Charlottesville may have been a pinnacle. It wasn't about immigration, but the DACA order that he so quickly then said, whoops, no, we want to have these kids stay, plus what happened in Charlottesville. Um, I think that may have been some major turning points on this because um, it, was, it has been a really ugly thing. And it's not just in the Midwest, it's everywhere. Um, and I'm proud that people have stood up, but we have to talk about it different ways. We have to talk about voter suppression in a different way. Um, that has become, I think the Fifth Circuit said that North Carolina discriminated with, quote, surgical precision, right? That was, that was their words. And it is a race issue, uh, it is. Uh, but it's also, as we think about how we talk about it, it's a civil liberties issue, it's a freedom issue. When I look at how we got gay marriage passed in Minnesota after we actually, I don't know if you know the story, it was, there was an anti-gay marriage amendment uh, during my election year in 2012, um, and they put it on there to hurt candidates, right? And it said no civil uh, unions and no gay marriage, right? Well, because they put that on there and they regretted it a year later, the Republican uh, legislature had put it on there. And because they put it on there, um, all the people up for legislature had to take a position on this. And so people who were in some rural areas and suburban areas, they kind of, they had led themselves finally to the position, no, I'm supporting gay marriage, or at least I'm supporting civil unions, or they would take this position. And so um, it got everyone motivated, because I remember thinking, how am I gonna 
uh, get a lot of people motivated because I had uh, was ahead by quite a bit in the election. And man, did that change when, uh, not my being ahead, but in terms of this amendment, got people motivated and there was a voter suppression one. Okay, so we completely defeat this thing, defy all odds. We're the first one that defeated in the country that defeated a negative because it's very hard. People are going in there and they're having to vote against that, right? And including, you know, Catholic iron ore workers in northern Minnesota, but they did. Why? We ran it as a civil liberties issue. There were a bunch of ads with Republicans saying, you know, I don't really care about this, but my neighbor, I've gotten to know him, and he has a kid that's gay, and they care about it. I believe he has the freedom to do what that was the theme. And so we, okay, so we win, we take back the legislature, this is 2012, and as a result, it never would have happened otherwise, we passed gay marriage in Dayton, signs in the law. I promise it wouldn't happen. We would have probably been a little like waiting out there in civil unions, but we did it because of they put that thing on the thing. And that's a good lesson for everyone. It galvanized people the other way. Okay, well, voting suppression, I think you could use the same kind of argument in terms of civil liberties. And while, yeah, maybe you could vote in my state, Minnesota, right, because of this, well, everyone should have the same right. And that's why when I get back next week, I'm actually um, introducing a bill for automatic voter registration for the entire country when eligible voters turn 18, right? And so the idea would be to to take what they have done in places like Oregon and, and bring this out on the national stage. So I think this piece of it, taking these things like gerrymandering in Wisconsin and, and what we've seen with the voter suppression and talking about it in a different way, we have to do that. Well, we have about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to try to get in a couple more audience questions. Um, and I'm going to combine two that we got because I think you can you can address both of them. Uh, one is is to talk a little bit about what it was like when you ran for Senate, uh, as, as particularly as a woman running for Senate, um, and, and how do you encourage more women to get involved in politics? But the other question we have here is, how do we get more young people involved in politics? Uh, well, we can start uh, with maybe with the young people by like not like attacking millennials and Generation Z or whatever. I'm not going to disagree just, with that one. <laughs> it is, I was laughing. I gave a commencement speech at uh, St. Olaf. Uh, in Minnesota, in Northfield, a few months ago. And um, I actually did all this research on funny things that people have said about millennials, like, <laughs> millennials have killed brunch. And so this was a headline. Millennials have are tubing the diamond ring business. Millennials have killed napkins. Okay, like, these are actual headlines. You could look at it. Um, and instead... Uh, looking at this generation and the one that's following, uh, which is here now in school, actually, um, as actually a generation that has done some pretty cool things. Like Barack Obama would not have been president if young people hadn't voted and then the youngest ones hadn't told their parents to support him. There's well-documented cases of this, including in my own family of 12-year-olds. Be like, really, Mom? When are you going to, you know, like this? Okay, so this is about when you come out and support someone. I think that's pretty interesting. It's this generation that brought us gay marriage. There's just no doubt about it. Um, and you kind of go through it, and they've been very passionate and involved in things. I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, and I think we have to um, um, really motivate people based on what's going on right now and what matters in their lives. And I've, I've laid that all out earlier with the issues and climate change and those kinds of things that matter. So I think that's part of it, making it easier to vote. 
you know, you're not going to participate if you can't vote. <laughs> it's very hard to do that. Uh, and I think that is a way to motivate millennials and get them involved, getting the dark money out of politics, um, uh, which is a huge thing. Um, and really has brought us to where we are, passing a, getting a, a national effort. Um, I'm sure it's not going to happen right away, but a national effort across the country um, to um, overturn, get a constitutional amendment passed to overturn Citizens United. Uh, that is a motivating force uh, to get people involved in our elections. So those are things I would do. Um, in terms of me running, yeah, that was pretty interesting. You got to roll back to 2006, and of course, uh, Tammy did the same thing in in her state. Uh, but for me, it was even earlier, and it was there were some amusing moments. So we had had two women run as Democrats. I was running against a congressman, and it was Mark Dayton's seat. He had decided not to run, uh, but it was viewed as the number one pickup for Republicans because the congressman was, you know, he was from an exurban district. Um, Mark Kennedy, his name was Kennedy. Um, and so, and, and um, I was the prosecutor. I had been reelected, uh, actually without an opponent, and had been um, pretty successful in my job. And it was about a fourth of our state, right? Uh, Hennepin County is two congressional districts out of eight. But, you know, there were people that couldn't pronounce my name. I mean, you cannot imagine the nightmare. I'm trying to raise money nationally. No one will return my calls. That was a dramatic moment where I finally decided in August where it's really hard to raise money and I had to raise $10 million uh, that I would just forget calling national people and go through all my old uh, this really dates me, address books and Rolodexes and find everyone I knew in my life. And that is when I set an all-time Senate record that no one has beat yet. I raised $17,000 from ex-boyfriends. And, um, and, uh, and as my husband has pointed out, it is not an expanding base, right? So this was, this was not easy. And then I also was running in this trail of loss of these two women. One was Senate major, state Senate Majority Leader. One was a Secretary of State. They were completely accomplished and ready to fill the job. Now, they had run each decade. Each decade, we had one. And by the way, we only had one other woman in uh, Congress before Betty McCollum and Michelle, and that was um, um, Koya Knudsen, who's, uh, there's a book written about it because Koya come home. Her career comes to an abrupt end when her husband gets drunk uh, with her opponent's uh, friends and gets him to write a letter to the newspaper that says, Koya, come home. I need you to basically clean the house front page news, she loses to a guy named Ogden something, uh, who, is cam who is six foot five or something, and his campaign theme is uh, a man-sized man for a man-sized job. True story. Okay, so this is the history. Like, there is no other history. There's the two women that have lost. There's her, there's Betty McCollum in a more liberal district, right? And there's Michelle and me. Okay, that's it. That's it for Congress, for Congress or for governor or for anything. So when I ran, I thought, okay, these two women, they had run on, we need a woman in the da-da. I'm like, well, this is not going to work uh, in our rural areas. So I did not run on that. I had huge support from women, obviously, and I was proud to have women's events, and it wasn't like I was hiding that I was a woman, duh. Um, but we ran much more on my record as a prosecutor, what I had done, uh, the work I had done on truancy, the work I had done on mothers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I mean things that were not just like tough on crime stuff, but we ran on that and how I had organized the office and saved money and because it's also does, it's a big office. I was managing 400 people for eight years. Um, 
So um, we ran on that, and I remember people asking me, the two most memorable newspaper editorial boards, asking me, well, can a woman win? This is in 2006. I go, well, a woman won in Texas, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, and I just, I think we can do it if Texas did it. Yes, I think they, that that's how I would answer it. Or, or how about this? I would say, and my staff would be like, why, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, I don't care, it works. Because I'd be in rooms of all these guys, and uh, they would sort of ask a similar question. I'd say, well, I'm not running as a woman. I am running on my background and my record and what I've done. Because if I only ran as a woman, I wouldn't win. Because half the voters are men. And the men would go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it really didn't quite make sense. But it worked. You just go with what works sometimes. OK, then the other thing I'll still remember, uh, iron ore, retired iron ore meeting of the steelworkers. And this woman stood up. And she says, my name is Rose Bradovich. She says, I am the wife of uh, this guy who's retired. And she says, and I've never voted for a woman before. I think they should be home with their kids. So these were like big, like people were willing to say this stuff. I think it was a little before social media. And it was actually good that they were saying this stuff because it got everything out. And she said, I've never voted. I think they should be home with their kids. She goes, but in your case, I'm making an exception. <laughs> and then they, she sent me $50 every single month after that. Uh, and I still see her. She shows up at things. But the funniest thing I didn't learn until last year, 10 years later, <laughs> was that there was a woman in there who had been mayor of, I don't know which, one of the small towns on the range. It's not easy being a woman mayor up there. And she said that was the moment that she realized Rose Bradovich had never voted for her. <laughs> she, had, like, she had suspected it all along. And now she knew. Um, so I think that a lot of this was not having that be the theme. I'm really looking forward to reading the chapter of Hillary's book about the sexism, which I think was rampant in you know, what she had to deal with and everything. Um, I think that's going to be an important chapter. I was watching her on TV on it. Um, and I think she can uniquely talk to this. Uh, but honestly, I think that, that um, there was a lot of, as you remember, the woman theme in her presidential race. Um, and I think that it's really, and I think Tammy would agree with this, you know, you run on, Tammy did not run on, her theme in every ad was not, I'll be the first openly gay, you know, da 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 um, No, she ran on her record in Congress and what she had done. So I think we have to remember that. Um, it is cool that you're breaking these glass ceilings, it's super cool, but it just can't be the theme. The voters don't see that as the reason they should put you in office. And so. Um, and I, when I talk about more women in politics, I don't think it's just numbers, right? It's showing the impact. It's the fact that, uh, that Patty Murray uh, was able to negotiate that education bill and is now doing this thing. It's the fact that Barbara Mikulski, when she was there, uh, could take on a lot of the appropriation matters and the budget things, or that Debbie Stabenow went in there and negotiated that farm bill, which is a really hard thing to do. So you actually show the impact and not just say, because we need someone in there that is of that gender. Well, I want to look ahead a little bit at, at your political future. You've decided, as you said, to run for Senate instead of uh, looking at the governor's race. Um, you're spending a little bit of time traveling the country, though, spent a little bit of time in Iowa. and. I'd like to know if, if you and Wisconsin and Wisconsin and, and Wisconsin, if if you are reelected and and you're you're pretty popular in Minnesota, will you commit to serving that full term? 
Uh, well, yeah, I, I tend to serve my term. I think that's important, but I will say that I think that when you look at all this presidential um, issues and who's going to run, there's going to be a ton of people running. And I think it's really important uh, that we have um, people uh, from the Midwest uh, that are out there, that are competing, that are talking. We just didn't really have that last time on our side now. Um, so I think that competition in the Democratic primary, it scares a lot of people, uh, but I think we need to have it. I think we need to have competition and not just two or three people running. Um, and, you know, they had that on the Republican side last time. They had, um, they had um, Bill Clinton um, uh, when he first ran. There was a lot of competition, um, and that served our party well. Um, so I think that that's a good thing. We tend to seem to do better when that happens. So I like my job now. That's what I'm focused on. Um, and, you know, figure things out later. So <laughs> you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, anything else you want to? Um, well, just that I, it is really great to be here. And I appreciate the civility of this. I appreciate that you're going to have uh, Republicans and Democrats speak. You're going to, I know, hear from uh, Ron Johnson later on, you can ask him about the work we did on the bridge from uh, uh, Minnesota to Wisconsin. It wasn't a bridge to nowhere. I kept telling my constituents it was a bridge to Wisconsin. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, we worked on that. And obviously, uh, Tammy and I are really good friends. I'm going to see her in about an hour here. Um, and I just think it's important uh, that at this crazy time uh, that we uh, keep uh, that civility going and discussion. It doesn't mean that you don't ask tough questions, and uh, but you uh, that we remember that this is a country that was, you know, built on um, people participating, and that's what our government's about, and that's why I'm so obsessed with this Russia thing. Because, um, and I spent the whole last week something I didn't mention, uh, trying to get an amendment on the National Defense Authorization Bill that uh, would have helped fund state election equipment um, going into 2018. Uh, it was an amendment with Lindsey Graham. It had the support of John McCain. He wanted it in there, as did our side, everyone on our side. Uh, in the House, it is being carried by Mark Meadows, the head of the Freedom Caucus. You may ask why. Well, because they are so afraid that there's going to be a hack in a local election when 21 states have been attacked and that it's a reality, it's a reality that this can happen, that then they're afraid, because they're the Freedom Caucus states' rights, right? They're afraid that then that we will nationalize the elections, right, instead of having it more locally based. And so they are strongly supporting this. Chertoff wrote a piece for this in the Wall Street Journal about our amendment, but I couldn't get it on the bill uh, because one or two Republican senators were blocking it. Um, and I just said, it is going to be on your hands when this happens in 2018. I can maybe get it done some other way with funding by the end of the year, but we can't wait further than that. This is about backup paper ballots. It's about states that don't have a lot of money in their elections. And if this happens like in Mississippi, it's going to taint our whole election process nationally, right? It's going to make people not trust in their democracies. Uh, and I just can't think of anything more important when you look at the billions of dollars in that defense bill, and we won't put a couple hundred million into protecting <laughs> our elections, the really fundamental part of our democracy. So I ask you to look into that, uh, advocate for that. 
um, ask the candidates here about that today. That's helpful. Um, and um, uh, the fact that we need to, um, and I'm not certain that either, of course, they're not opposing this. It's just that there's people that are opposing it in the Senate that didn't want it on there. Um, and I just think that we need to, yes, we're looking at this to figure out what happened, uh, to use the words from uh, Hillary's book, uh, but more importantly, we are looking at this to protect us in the future. Uh, because as Marco Rubio said uh, one time, it was one party and one candidate, and the next time it's going to be the other party and the other candidate, and we have to start uh, viewing it that way. So that's my last big idea to leave you with at the Ideas Festival. So, well, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you.